What if your job was to be a torturer, like you had to torture people, and you were given, uh, you could pick one torture device to torture people, what would you choose? If that were me, I know this seems kind of odd, right? But if that were me, I would pick depression, because depression is terrible. I went through a season of it, and I wouldn't want to wish it on anyone. Now, if depression wasn't available to me and I was the torturer, you know what else I would pick for my second choice? It would be hiccups. I had unrelenting hiccups for 24 hours once, and that may not sound very bad, but that was terrible. I would have confessed to anything if you would have asked me. I wouldn't wish that on anyone either. But this morning, we're going to talk about depression, hopelessness, hopelessness, and loneliness, and how to handle these very dark and difficult times of life. And if you are going through them, it can feel like you're being tortured. We're going to walk through a section of scripture this morning that you may not be familiar with, but I bet that by the time we're done, you won't ever forget. It's because this section of scripture deals with uh, reality of life and things that we go through um, and things that other people around us go through. Uh, The author David Pallison calls Psalm 88, which we're going to look at, the basement of the Psalms. And so this deals with the the, the messiness, the, the darkness that life can be at times, whether you're a believer or not. So whether you're going through a season of darkness, depression, loneliness, hopelessness, uh, or you have in the past, or there's somebody around you, or you want to minister to someone who's going through that, I hope that this session, and I pray that this session will be helpful to you. So if you would, pray with me to begin. God, thank you for uh, your word that deals with real things in life, uh, hard things that we go through. I pray that you would help us to be, uh, have open hearts to what you have to teach us this morning. Help us to deal with our own pride, where we feel like we know how, way, how the way life should go. Help us to rely on grace. Help us to see Jesus. And as we've been talking about First Peter uh, yesterday and all this week that deals with suffering, we see that there is tremendous suffering here in these dark times. And help us to see how you are using it uh, for our benefit and for your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. So the notes are on page uh, 35 in your packet, uh, but the scripture is on page 34 if you're not there already. And I'm going to read Psalm 88. Now, there was a bit of a mistake in the printing of the packets. I didn't catch it. But in the, the, the psalm, sometimes there's a preamble in the front. It's sort of like verse zero, if you will. So it's part of the scripture, but it actually didn't make it into the packet. And I'll just summarize it as a couple sentences. But it basically says who the author is of this song. And it says, this is a well-written song by Heman the Ezraite. And we'll see why that's important. But Heman wrote this, and here's what he wrote. Verse 1. O Lord God who delivers me, by day I cry out, and at night I pray before you. Listen to my prayer. Pay attention to my cry for help. For my life is filled with troubles, and I am ready to enter Sheol. They treat me like those who descended into the grave. I am a helpless man, adrift among the dead, like corpses lying in the grave. 
whom you remember no more and who are cut off from your power. You place me in the lowest regions of the pit, in the dark places, in the watery depths. Your anger bears down on me and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. You cause those who know me to keep their distance. You make me an appalling sight to them. I am trapped and I cannot get free. My eyes grow weak because of oppression. I call out to you, O Lord, all day long. I spread out my hands in prayer to you. Do you accomplish amazing amazing things for the dead? Do the departed spirits rise up and give you thanks? Is your loyal love proclaimed in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of the dead? Are your amazing deeds experienced in the dark region or your deliverance in the land of oblivion? As for me, I cry out to you, O Lord, in the morning my prayer confronts you. O Lord, why do you reject me and pay no attention to me? I am oppressed and I have been on the verge of death since my youth. I have been subjected to your horrors and I am numb with pain. Your anger overwhelms me. Your terrors destroy me. They surround me like water all day long. They join forces and encircle me. You cause my friends and neighbors to keep their distance. Those who know me leave me alone in the darkness. You can look on your outline there. There's four sections that we hope to cover this morning. And the author begins by lamenting about his current state of affairs, verses 1 through 5. Now, I mentioned that this psalm was written by a guy named Heman the Ezrite. He's actually mentioned a few times in 1 Chronicles. And one example in 1 Chronicles 15, 16, and 17, it says this about him. It says, King David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps, lyres, and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. So the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel. So this guy was appointed worship leader to bring sounds of joy to God's people, to lead them in song. So I suppose that he didn't get fired from his job because the psalm exists here. But I'm sure this is not what he signed up to write or to go through. So even though this psalm is dark, when we start at the very beginning, though, there's a bit of hope because he makes a very clear and true and affirming statement at the very beginning of verse 1. Oh, Lord God, who delivers me? So he's praying to this God who saves and delivers. But it goes downhill quickly from there. He is crying out day and night in verse one. So why is he doing this? Verse three, he says his life is full of troubles and he's ready to enter Sheol. So he, he's basically saying, look, I'm about to die. I can't take this anymore. He feels ignored and helpless in verse four, like a corpse already in the grave. And in verse five, he feels like God has forgotten about him and left him alone. So what does this mean? It means a couple of things. First is that life can get like this. Life can get this way. 
And even if your job is to be a worship leader who's supposed to lead people in songs of praise, it can get this way. This guy is in bad shape and life is not going the direction that he dreamed that it would go in. Imagine that he wrote this down and he, he had to bring his manuscript to his fellow singers and show it to them. Imagine the potential shame that he had. Wasn't he supposed to bring songs of joy? I'm glad that he did that because it shows us that this is how life can get at times. And we can struggle this way and it can happen to anyone. No one is immune to this. Can you identify with this author? Have you gone through dark times, perhaps like this? For me, uh, there was a season that I went through a very dark time. And I later realized that it was depression that I was going through. And it all began with a very strange day. I was going about my day like normal. And then lunch, about lunchtime hit and something happened. I felt like the bottom of life just dropped out and I had no feelings anymore and I didn't care about anything. It was actually really scary because I had no idea what was going on. Thankfully, the Lord brought me through that season and it, it took a long time, it took a number of years. Um, but in hindsight, I realized that there were a lot of factors going on that led up to that moment. Uh, so you know, I work for Disciple Makers, I work on campus, I work up at Penn State, uh, and I didn't realize that what I had labeled as concern for students and the ministry really was unhelpful anxiety. So we'd have our large group meeting on Friday nights, for example, and I would get home and I just couldn't sleep most of the night because I was so anxious. Like, did we talk to every person? How are they doing? How did they receive the message? What's going to happen next week? Are they going to come back? Are we growing? Is this worth it? All of these things would just grip me and I couldn't sleep. And, and, and on top of that, just so much other anxiety, worried about the past and what happened. And then at the next moment, worried about what was going to happen in the future, planning for plan A, B, C, D, E, and F, so that, that I'd be ready and not caught off guard, never really resting in the moment. In fact, I never said in my whole life, I gave it my best shot, because I felt like that was a lie. I could always do better. On top of all that, I had back pain and little kids, and I hardly slept. And through that whole process, I didn't think that there was a problem until life, the bottom of life, dropped out. I came to a point where I had no ability to hide any longer or to run any longer, and I was face-to-face with it. Now, before that happened, before I went through that season, I would have looked at other people who were struggling with depression and said their faith was weaked weak, and that wouldn't happen to me. I had such pride in my heart. And when I was in the depths of despair, sort of like this guy here in these first five verses, my best worship was simply being raw with God. And about the only thing I could do was to just cry for help. God, I don't even know what's wrong with me. Please help me. So life can get this way. Like I said, no one is immune, even worship leaders appointed 
to bring people in praise to God. And so what do we do if we find ourselves in this situation? Well, we do what this guy does, is that we respond by crying out for help. He clearly feels like he's about ready to quit, but he hasn't quit yet. And he feels like God doesn't care, but he's still reaching out to him in verse 1. And so when you are facing dark times or your friend is facing dark times, remember that we cry out to God. And God has given us two means to cry out for help. There's himself and then there's other people. So first off, is God the one you cry out to? Is he your rescuer and deliverer, just like verse 1? If you were lost in the woods and you knew that there was a rescue team looking for you, would you ever stop crying out for help? No, you would just keep going until they found you. Now, of course, God knows where we are at all times and he knows what we're going through. We may not know his purposes in it, but he wants us to be in this moment to cry out to him for help. And he also doesn't want us to run for false rescues or, um, or just escapes to get away from the pain. We want, uh, he wants us to run to him. And so that could be things like you know, food or indulging in online things. Or For me, I tried to keep busy to hide from the pain. Just like anything to keep busy. I don't want to rest. I don't want to stop. I don't want to look at this thing because it's too painful. But God wanted me And when you're at that time, he wants you to be desperate and cry out to him for help. So are you crying out like verse 4? I am a helpless man. God, help me. I don't even know how to pray. I hate this moment. Please help me to carry on when I don't even feel like I have any bit of strength left. Remember, this psalmist felt like he was about ready to die but he's crying out day and night to God. God has also provided other people that we can cry out to. So if you're struggling with depression, loneliness, hopelessness, please let other people know. Be open to others. Seek godly and wise counsel. Now, you guys are going into the summer, so that might mean going to your pastor at your home church and opening up. Or it might mean uh, sharing with your staff worker. Certainly, you can come talk to me if you want to. Uh, Or if you're back on campus, your campus almost certainly provides counseling for you to go take advantage of. Now, one of the misunderstandings about depression is that it's only spiritual. And I I don't want to dispel that because it could also be chemical or physiological or something else. Okay, so what that means is that when you're crying out to others for help, maybe it means you need to go to the doctor. And that's totally fine. Don't be ashamed to go to the doctor or seek medical help. You know, if someone has a deep wound, say they cut their arm and they're bleeding profusely, what do they do? You go to the ER to get help. You don't just try to grunt it out. It'll get better. Don't try to grunt it out. So don't be ashamed to get medical help. And if things are bad enough where you're considering even having suicidal thoughts, you need big-time help, okay? Just just call out, okay, I'm broken, and call for help. Maybe you even need to call 911. Go ahead and do that. 
Don't be ashamed. It's not a shameful thing to struggle. Remember, this guy was clear with where he was at and how he was struggling. So God has, is the one that we can cry out to, we can cry out to other people. And though life may not be going the way that you want, uh, we have this, this lifeline of hope that we can cry out to the God who delivers. Now let's move on to ver- the section number two, verses six through nine. Now when my kids, I have five kids, when they were little, little kids, they told me that they had seen the devil on TV. And I said, really? They said, yes, he's Darth Vader. I didn't know that. Now as adults, when we're going through difficult times and we're suffering and bad things are happening, we're probably not gonna blame Darth Vader. We might blame the devil because he's evil. But our psalmist here, when he's going through dark times, he doesn't blame either one of them. Look at verse six. He says, you, who's the you? God, you put me in the lowest pit. Verse seven, your anger. And it says, you overwhelm me with your waves. So this idea that even God is causing him to drown That's how he feels. And his friends are being kept at a distance and he's made an appalling sight to even his companions, verse eight. This is a significant moment because he's realizing that God is sovereign and God can do whatever he wants. He feels trapped in verse eight. You can't get away from God and his sovereignty. You know, you may not like God in this moment or even right now, but where are you going to go to run away from him? You can't. Maybe when you were a little kid, you could maybe have dreams of running away from home. Maybe you guys did that. But what if your parents were omnipresent, all-knowing, and all-powerful? You can't get away no matter what. And so when you realize this, it can be very unnerving. Again, so what do you do? What do you do when you realize this? You want to hide. You want to hide from God, but you need God. And so you're kind of stuck. Well, again, you do what this guy does in verse 9. You engage God. He prays all day long. That's what he says. And the fact that he does this, even at this point in the psalm, I think is so encouraging and amazing because he feels trapped. He doesn't like God, but he needs God. Keeps praying and he doesn't run away. He has to hold on to the fact that God and his character is good. And somehow, some way, in a plausible world, God is using this for good. Now, um, I hate going to the dentist because I feel like I'm exchanging my hard-earned cash for pain. I don't know if you guys feel that way. Even though somehow I know it's good. I like what C.S. Lewis says on this point. He says this, What do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he's good? Have they never been to the dentist? Sometimes we feel trapped like this author, and we hate being 
weak. You know, we might be able to acknowledge that God is working something together for good in this moment, but that's about the best we have. And it may be that you have uh, not much more than that. But God is sovereign, and we are to engage him even when we don't feel like it. So what might this look like? It might look like praying, God, I don't want to pray right now. Help me to persevere because I don't feel like it. Or if you don't want to read your Bible, I bet Heman didn't want to read his Bible. Say, God, I don't want to read my Bible right now. And then read Psalm 88 because you'll be in good company. Or perhaps what it means is that you need to deal with your pride because somehow this, this thought that you know how life should go is, 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 and that you're really in control is something that you have to repent of because you don't have, the right, you don't have all the answers. And so engaging God is what we need to do. And even though he may be the last person in the world that you want to talk to right now, he is your only hope and your only option to be rescued. So let's look at this last section here, verses uh, 10 through 18. Remember verse 9, he started to pray, and maybe there's a little bit of light in the situation, and maybe the plane is starting to come out of the nosedive. He's calling out to God, which is good. But in these last verses here, this last section, we're going to see more of the same thing that we saw at the beginning, the same sentiment of his struggle, but there's going to be a shocking ending. So let's walk through it. Verses 10 through 12. In here, to the author, God doesn't make sense. He asks a lot of questions. If you want to look at it, there's a lot of questions there. He appeals to logic. And a lot of these questions are good ones. But from his perspective, the way that God is acting just doesn't make any sense. I'll paraphrase. God, aren't you supposed to be for the people who are alive? Because if we're dead, we can't praise you. Why would you allow darkness and isolation to happen to your people, especially the worship leader? This doesn't make any sense. Amazingly, he follows up with this in verse 13 and 14 by praying and crying out again. Although it's interesting, he says in verse 13, in the morning, my prayer confronts you. Do you ever think about your prayers that way? I'm going to confront you, God. And then in verses 15 to 18, he repeats how awful he feels. He is suffering so much, he says in verse 15, that he's numb with pain. So much pain that he's numb. Again, 16, God, you did this. And then it ends with his friends leaving him and he is in the darkness alone. So this guy is a real mess. And the psalm ends with a man by himself with no friends, no God, and he says that the darkness itself is his friend. Or another translation says, darkness is my closest friend. And then the psalm ends. 
In fact, in Hebrew, the last word of this psalm is the word darkness. So if you're reading it in Hebrew, it's na 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 na, period. And so what does this mean? It means that being a mess is messy. If you had asked me how I was doing at certain points, and I said, in the, in the language of this guy, you know, darkness is my closest friend. I don't really feel like praying or believing in God, and I don't really care about anything. How would you respond to me? Would you think, this guy is supposed to be a Christian. He's in ministry. He's not supposed to say those things. How this ends here with darkness period actually gives me encouragement. Again, because life can be this way and we can be a mess and we don't have to slap on a band-aid of, but, but hope will be in God, your hope will be in God or something like that and stuff your feelings. This guy was a, a writer of scripture and this song was sung in corporate worship. So this is an important psalm for us to know. And its ending was not a mistake. So what does this mean? Two considerations. When we're the mess and when other people are the mess. First one, we're the mess. It's easy to forget that we are weak. We live in a broken world where most of our instincts, the pressure that's around us tells us to act strong, hide, and, and feel like we have it all or present to the world that we have it all together, right? So if you're, if you're suffering uh, like this and someone comes up to you and asks you, hey, how you doing? What do we typically say? I'm good. But inside you know that you're not good. And we, we feel tempted to not admit that we are a wreck and that we're a mess to other people. I mean, this guy, verse 15, says that he's been on the verge of death since youth, He was a mess and he was open about his struggle and he was okay to not just put a smile on his struggle. A comfort that we have, again, is that God knows where we are. He knows that we need rescue. He knows that we're a mess. If you look at the top of your outline, there's a quote there, which I really like, from this guy named Derek Kittner. He says, the presence of such prayers in scripture, and he's talking about Psalm 88, is a witness to his understanding. God knows how men speak when they are desperate. So it is okay to admit that you are a mess. God knows that you're desperate. Secondly, how do we minister to other people who are a mess? Again, what if this guy here, Heman, came into your small group and he said these things? What would you say to him? Would you say, just trust God? Or God is working together all things for good, human. Why don't you believe it? When I was uh, in the depths of depression and struggling, there were so many friends around me that were wanting to help me. And and every single one of them were very well-meaning. There was some help that I received, though, that wasn't as helpful And it kind of went along the lines of friends who wanted me to to see the sin that I had in my life and to repent of it. 
sort of like a laser guided, you know, get that sin and then you'll, you know, be fixed. I'm sure that's not what they were thinking, but I felt that way and I knew that I had to repent of sin. I knew I wasn't like this perfect person, but that actually wasn't the help that I needed. What I desperately needed was to deal with the shame that I had. And, and I couldn't make sense of things. My world was just so messed up. And so the friends that came alongside of me and said, look, you're a mess and it's okay. God knows you're a mess. I see that you're a mess. God's not freaking out. I'm not freaking out. And when my friends said that to me, I felt deeply ministered to. Because part of the struggle that I had was, I am so far from God, I'm a mess. And there's something wrong with me and, and uniquely to me and the whole world. And yet friends said, it's okay to be a mess. You are currently a mess right now. And I'm right here with you. So if your friend is acting strange, they're not who they used to be. You can see that they need help. Go to them and tell them, and maybe read this psalm to them and say, look, I'm not freaking out. God's not freaking out. Let me listen to you. Tell me how you're feeling. Come alongside them. One thing that, I, that, I, um, that helps me to minister to other people who are struggling in this way is, even though it's not very evident on the outside, right? They might smile and say, great, but you know, you know them. You know that they're really struggling. Uh, so like a mental ill health illness is not very evident on the outside, but think of it as a physical illness. So uh, Dave said this morning that he went through the stomach bug. I just had the stomach bug. Imagine if someone had the stomach bug and they're on the couch. It's very clear uh, what you don't do and how you can help, what you don't do and how you can help them. You don't just go up to them and say, hey, just get some more sleep or just, you know, X, Y, Z. You say, hey, what can I get for you? Do you want to drink a water? I'll bring it in. And so think of them having a physical illness, and that may help you to know how to minister to them. Maybe you need to bring them to the doctor. But one thing that you want to do, whether you're the mess or you're helping someone else, is to encourage them not to give up. So it may be okay to be a mess, and that's the title I have there in point number three, but it is not okay to give up. It is not okay to turn your back on God. The way that the psalm ends in verse 18 with darkness being the last word, I think help, helps us see that there are no quick fixes for depression of this level. But even throughout this whole psalm, he doesn't give up. We see those three different sections, verse 1, 9, and 13. While he's still crying out, he's still praying. His feelings are real to him, but they don't define reality. He writes down the psalm. He writes it, they sing, he gives it to his friends. He keeps fighting, he keeps praying. Again, it's okay to be a mess, but not okay to give up. And so no matter how dark life gets or how dark it feels, that's not reality. There is still light getting into that darkness. And for us and for Heman, if we're going through it or your friend's going through it, hold on to that hope, even if it's the last photon in that dark place. Do not give up. When I was in the darkest of dark days, some of the things that helped me was to ask myself the question, 
do I believe that life will always be this way right now? No, I, I wouldn't think that's always going to be like this right now. And that started me on a path of like, the next step was like, okay, maybe is it plausible that God is possibly doing something good here in you? Yeah. And that really helped me to have a better perspective. Another way to help uh, not give up, again, is to consider how God may be using this for good. Could it be that God is using this to change you or to help other people even? And Tim Keller gave a sermon that I listened to on Psalm 88, and he said, can you imagine Heman who wrote this? How many people have been ministered to by his words, and even us today, thousands of years later, reading and being ministered to by his words? Could he even imagine that? And so God could be using the, the darkness in our lives not only to change us, but to minister to other people. And so it's okay to be a mess, but it's not okay to give up. Keep fighting. And so we've come to the end of the psalm here. And even though the darkness is the last word of the psalm, it's not the end of the whole story. Because if you remember verse one, how he started, he said that God is the God who delivers me. That's who he is praying to. And this is so fascinating because the name of Jesus is the Lord saves or the Lord delivers. So he doesn't maybe even realize it. He's pointing ahead to Jesus. And this is the end of the story. It's Jesus himself, where darkness itself gets destroyed. And that's the title I picked. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed and within those few hours after that, experienced Psalm 88. I'm going to read some scripture to you and just listen to what Jesus had to go through. Matthew 26, 38. This is Jesus speaking and to his disciples. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Of course, you guys know what happens. All of his disciples Well, they slept and then they fled, which is very similar to Psalm 88, where his companions left him alone. Matthew 26, 39, Jesus says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Even Jesus finds himself in this moment with the temptation to run away, yet he makes the request to God and submits to his will. He doesn't give up. And then Matthew 26, 56. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Jesus experienced Psalm 88, verse 8, that you, you cause those who know me to keep their distance. You make me an appalling sight to them. If you even remember Peter, when he was questioned by the servant girl 
in the courtyard. He called down curses on himself. I don't know the man. Heman, who wrote the psalm, thought that darkness was his only friend. But that's not true. Jesus was the one who was truly abandoned by all. Heman had a savior with him. Jesus did not. But you might ask, what about his father? When Jesus was on the cross, he quoted Psalm 22, verse 1, that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is here that Jesus experiences Psalm 88 in its fullest. His friends abandon him. His father abandons him. He is left alone in the darkness. And it's here that Jesus destroys darkness by taking on sin and destroying it, taking on the punishment that we deserved so that we can have life. And that is our hope. That's what we hold on to. Jesus even had to look ahead past this difficult time of the cross. Hebrews 12.3 tells us this. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice it was the joy set before him. He was looking ahead, getting through that difficult time to be seated at the right hand of God, and he saw the joy. And so as we end here in this final point, one last application I have for you is to embrace God's dream. Embrace his dream. Again, I would not want depression to be put on anyone. I think it's terrible. Yet at the same time, I look back in hindsight on my life and I see how God used it for good and how he was um, helping me to see how I need to rest in him and how, I not, how so much I hold on to the things of the world and, and I don't find the contentment in him and so forth. Ultimately, it helps me to see how much I don't hold on to Jesus and allow him to be my rescuer. I have a book called Overcoming Spiritual Depression. I have it back there, or I would show it to you, uh, but you can see me after the session if you want to check it out. But the author says this, it is not easy to conclude that we naturally despise being dependent on grace. It's not easy to conclude we naturally despise being dependent on grace. So where might God be rattling you or, or shaking up your life where that you have to come face to face with relying on his grace. You might be suffering or struggling and that is what God is calling you to face, relying on his grace. Because what's ahead is this joy that was set before Jesus is also if you believe in him, that is set before you. And it may not feel like that in the moment right now, but it's true nonetheless. And listen to this. Jesus said in John 14, verses 1 to 3, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you to myself that where I am, you also may be. So what Jesus is saying there is that he's gonna be the one that comes and rescues you to bring you to his heavenly home, to that dream. It's not you yourself. And so if you are in top physical shape, you're running a marathon, you're on fire for God, God's still gonna rescue you. You're not gonna get there on your own. And if you're on a stretcher, crying out to God for help, I can't do a thing, God, help me. He'll come and rescue you and bring you to his heavenly home. It is dependent on his grace because he is the one who destroyed darkness. And so he is our savior all the time, even if we're going through depression, hopelessness, or loneliness. God is the rescue. Again, if you are going through any of these dark times, particularly, please reach out to someone else. I'm happy to talk with you. And if you need to call for help, please do so. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you that this Psalm 88 is in scripture and that we can see that you are a true hope and that when we are going through very difficult times, um, there have There are plenty of others, even in scripture, that have suffered the same way. So help us uh, see Jesus clearly through all of this dark time. We pray this in your name. Amen.